0: Section 6 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Larry Wilson. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bamba. Speculative insurance, Part One: Gambling. Kent, in his commentaries, says the necessity of an interest in the life insured in order to support the policy prevails generally in this country, because wager contracts are almost universally held to be unlawful, either in consequence of some statute provision or upon principles of the common law. In the early history of life insurance, this disregard of the question of insurable interest led to gambling of the most pernicious sort. Although the abuses incident to this speculative practice in England, as graphically described by Mr. Francis, have yielded to prohibitive statutes, it appears that in some countries it is not unusual, even at the present day, to effect insurances upon the lives of individuals not connected in any way with the wagering parties. Among illustrative cases may be cited the following curious instance. Swedish Gambling In 1855, one Svensson of Karlskrona insured the life of an old soldier named Hofstet, of the same place, in the Mentor Company of London for $8,000, and in the Paternail Company of Paris for 7,500 francs. In August 1856, Hofstet died, and Svensson claimed the amount insured in the two offices. The Mentor Company paid at once, but the paternel thought it advisable to institute an investigation respecting the death. It then turned out that Hofstedt was a confirmed drunkard, and that Svensson supplied him money to enable him to drink brandy in excess, His object being, it was affirmed, to hasten his death. The old soldier at last died very suddenly, and the rumor was spread that Svensson had poisoned him by putting arsenic in the brandy. The dead body was examined, and arsenic was found in it. Svensson was consequently arrested and brought to trial before the criminal court of the district on the charge of poisoning. But the charge could not be established. He was acquitted. As, however, he was proved to have had arsenic in his possession, and in Sweden this is illegal for a private person, he was fined sixteen rix dollars. On appeal, the judgment was confirmed. The public prosecutor then petitioned the king to cause the man to be imprisoned in a fortress on the ground that there was no moral doubt of his guilt. In August 1857, His Majesty refused this petition, and at length the man was released. Meantime, he had become bankrupt. The assignees now instituted proceedings for payment against the Paternal Company in Paris. The ground on which they based the action was that the judgments of the Swedish courts proved clearly that no murder had been perpetrated, and that the company could not prove that Hofstedt committed suicide, so the insurance remained valid. The company, however, contended first that the judgments of the Swedish courts were not binding in France, and, consequently, that this acquittal of the man amounted to nothing in the eye of the law. Next, that as Hofstedt had undoubtedly died of poison, It was clear either that he had committed suicide or that he had been poisoned by the man who was to benefit by his death, either of which cases in France rendered an insurance invalid. The civil tribunal adopting the arguments of the company rejected the action. A Theatrical Manager's Venture The English Statute of 14 Geo 3 C. 48 prohibited insurance on lives when the person insuring had no interest in the life, and it prohibited the recovery of a greater sum than the amount or value of the interest of the insured in the life. As Angel remarks, insurance upon lives, as well as upon other events in which the person insured has no interest, not only inevitably tends to introduce a pernicious sort of gambling and speculation, but it is pregnant with serious mischief." Notwithstanding the statute referred to, the criminal annals of England furnish a number of cases of this sort of gambling, even to the extent of murder, in order to recover under a fictitious claim of interest. In this country, as already quoted from Kent, the necessity of an interest in the life insured to support the policy generally prevails. Of the various instances of wanton disregard of an insurable interest which have occurred in the United States, One of the most noteworthy cases is that of Robert Fox, proprietor of a variety theater in Philadelphia. The history of this case shows that in May 1872, Mr. Fox made application to the Penn Mutual Life Insurance Company for a policy of $20,000 on the life of John Clark Lee, which was accepted. The premium was to be paid partly in cash and partly by note. Mr. Fox paid the amount required in cash... $460.86, but never executed or delivered the note for the balance. On or about May 20th, less than a week after date of the policy, the President heard some reports relative to the character and habits of Lee, so entirely at variance with his statements made in the application and in his medical examination, that an investigation was at once ordered, and in a few days it was ascertained that all the reports referred to were entirely trustworthy. The President immediately wrote to Mr. Fox, requesting him to call at the office of the company, which he did. He was informed of the results of the investigation and charged with knowledge of the facts. To this he made no denial. The President then stated to him that the policy would never have been issued had not the truth been concealed and facts misrepresented and proposed to return him the premium which he had paid and cancel the policy. He refused to take the money, and declined to surrender the policy. The President then had prepared and served upon him a formal notice of which the following is a copy. Philadelphia, June 8, 1872 Robert Fox Esquire Dear Sir, Having recently learned some facts in connection with the habits of John Clark Lee, Upon whose life a policy of insurance was issued by this company, May 15, 1872, number 13,544, for $20,000, in your favor and for your benefit, the knowledge of which facts I have reason to believe was designedly withheld by the assured from the officers of the company, and which, had they been known to the company, would have prevented the issue of the policy. I deem it to be my duty to notify you at once that the company does not consider itself bound by this policy and desires to cancel and annul the same. I herewith tender to you the amount of cash paid for the premium, the interest on the credit, and the policy fee in all amounting to $460.86, and request a return of the policy for cancellation. In default of your accepting this view of the matter... I hereby give you notice that the company refuses to consider itself responsible for said policy, or for any liability under the same, and will hereafter refuse to accept any future premium for such insurance. Yours respectfully, Samuel C. Huey, President. The policy was then ruled off the books of the company, and the premium received, $460.86, passed to the personal credit of Mr. Fox, where it stood subject to his order. Of this action, Mr. Fox was fully advised. No further steps were taken in the matter, nor was any tender ever made by Mr. Fox of the balance of the premium. Before the next annual premium would have been due, Mr. Lee died, and Mr. Fox demanded the amount of the policy. Payment was refused, and the officers of the company were satisfied that the insured members and the community at large, when acquainted with the facts, would fully justify their course in resisting this claim based as it was upon a policy obtained originally by fraud and misrepresentation, and formally repudiated by the company in a few days after its issue. Upon the trial of the cause, the plaintiff put in evidence the policy, proved the death of Lee some nine or ten months subsequent to the date of the policy, and attempted to prove an insurable interest simply by his own oath. He admitted that he had no note, check, receipt, entry in cash book or check book or scratch a pen of any kind to substantiate his statement, and that he had no witness to the existence of the indebtedness except himself. The defense set up their reasons for resisting the claim. 1. A cancellation of the policy, as already detailed. 2. The total want of insurable interest on the part of Robert Fox in the life of Lee. 3. Gross and fraudulent misrepresentation in the application for the policy, and to the medical examiner, and for preparation of leave for the medical examination by means of Turkish baths, suspended drinking, clean clothing, etc. They put in evidence the application in which Lee stated, among other things, that he had always been sober and temperate, that he was an advertising agent, that he was in good health, and that he had concealed nothing with which the company ought to be made acquainted and the certificate of the examiners, to whom Lee had stated that he did not use any spirits, opium, or tobacco, except an occasional cigar. They then, by witnesses, traced Lee step by step for the ten or fifteen years previous to his death, in New York, Washington, and Philadelphia, and showed that he had been an habitual hard drinker, a man of notoriously dissipated habits, a man whose employments had been those of keeping bar and distributing theater bills, and that at the date of the insurance he was a doorkeeper and distributor of playbills at the plaintiff's variety theatre over forty witnesses testified in the most positive manner with reference to his intemperate habits and the proof was of the most convincing character witnesses were then produced to prove by lee's own declarations that he had been attacked by Mania apotu that he was sick and suffering from dissipation and that prior to effecting the insurance Mr. Fox had, for a short time, kept him from liquor, supplying its place with other stimulants, had sent him to the Turkish baths, had given him clean clothing, and thoroughly prepared him for the medical examination, with the character of which he, Fox, was himself perfectly familiar. The court declined to admit this testimony on legal grounds. Employers, associates, his roommate, police officers, all united in describing John Clark Lee as a debauched, dissipated man, but one who, by his naturally good constitution and robust build, could stand more liquor than most of those with whom he associated. The plaintiff attempted to break the force of this evidence by calling attachés of his own and other variety theatres and asking them the simple question, Did you ever see Lee drunk? No other question was hazarded, and Fox himself did not dare to go on the stand and testify as to Lee's habits. The facts relative to the cancellation of the policy within a few days of its issue, and with the full knowledge of both Fox and Lee, were not disputed. Medical testimony relative to the condition of the body of Lee after death was submitted by both plaintiff and defendant. Both sides having addressed the jury, the judge delivered his charge and the case was given to the jury. Few, if any, aside from the plaintiff's immediate friends, imagined a possibility of hesitation in finding for the defendant, and yet the next morning a verdict was rendered for the plaintiff, and the damage assessed at $20,691.25. The company at once applied to have the verdict set aside, and a new trial granted, and were successful in their application. The case, however, was wisely abandoned by Mr. Fox. End of Section 6